Your brain needs support, and new Ollie Brainy Chews are a delightful way to take care of your cognitive health. Made with scientifically backed ingredients like Thai ginger, L theanine, and caffeine, Brainy Chews support healthy brain function and help you find your focus, stay chill, or get energized. Be kind to your mind and get these nootropic chews at ollie.com. That's O-L-L-Y.com. These statements have not been evaluated by the Food and Drug Administration. This product is not intended to diagnose, treat, cure, or prevent any disease. What does motion sound like? With Kizik Hands Free Shoes, it sounds a little something like this. Experience the magic of motion. Get a free pair of socks with your first order at kizik.com slash socks. Hello, everybody. This is Marshall Poe. I'm the editor of the New Books Network. NBN listeners like to read books and buy them. So we thought we'd tell you that right now, our friends at Princeton University Press are having a remarkable site-wide sale. You can get 50% off books, including ebooks and audiobooks, with the code 50, F-I-F-T-Y, at checkout until May 31. You can save some real money on Princeton University Press books. I encourage you to go there and check it out. Welcome to the New Books Network. Hello, everybody, and welcome back to New Books in Law, a podcast channel on the New Books Network. I'm your host, Alex Batesmith, and today I'm delighted that we'll be talking to Gary Bass about his recent book, Judgment of Tokyo, World War II on Trial and the Making of Modern Asia. Gary is a professor of politics and international affairs at Princeton University. His teaching and research focuses on international security and the causes of war, human rights, international justice, humanitarian intervention, and international law. And his work is required reading for anyone interested in these fields. His writing combines meticulous research with a fantastic ability to tell a compelling story, as evidenced by his many awards. I'll spare his blushes, but uh, just uh, out of um, uh, the, the purpose of, of, of explaining um, Gary's background, Pulitzer Prize finalist Arthur Ross Book Award from the Council on Foreign Relations, the Bernard Schwartz Book Award from the Asia Society, uh, Best book of the year from The Economist, et cetera, et cetera, to name a few of the literary accolades that have come this way, his way. I first came across Gary's work just before taking up a post as a United Nations war crimes prosecutor in Kosovo in 2003 when I read his book, Stay the Hand of Vengeance, The Politics of War Crimes Tribunals, the latest section of which relates to the Yugoslav conflict in the 1990s. So I was delighted to learn of his latest book written about the Tokyo trials, the International Military Tribunal for the Far East, that focused on the criminal responsibility of the Japanese civilian and military leadership. And even more delighted when he accepted the invitation to talk about his new book on the podcast. Gary, welcome to New Books in Law. Alex, thank you for having me. Excellent, Gary. I've uh, given a very brief bio, but I wonder if you could begin by telling us a little more. What was your journey into academia and to researching the area that led you to writing the book? Oh, I was a I was a reporter after college. Um, I, I worked for The Economist, which was a fabulous place to learn how to write and how to think about politics. Um, and I actually, my first book grew, grew out of a three-pager that I wrote for The Economist about the war crimes tribunal for the former Yugoslavia. And it occurred to me that there was a much broader story to be told about international justice um, and uh, the ways in which it was enmeshed in power politics and the ways in which great powers manipulate international law for their own purposes. So that became my first book, uh, Stay the Hand of Vengeance. Great. Thanks for that. So let's get straight to your book, uh, the most recent book, Judgment at Tokyo, World War II on Trial and the Making of Modern Asia. Could you tell us how and why you came to write it and, and why now, perhaps? 
Um, well, why now? The, I mean, the book took 10 years, so mm. I don't know that it's especially timely, but in the, you know, in a more general sense that there is, um, certainly in the United States, and I think also in Britain, there's so little attention paid to Asia that other issues predominate the news. Um, and, you know, 10 years ago when I wrote it, I was really nervous about the possibility that there would be a terrible war in Asia. And today I'm nervous about the possibility that there'll be a terrible war in Asia. Um, so it was a way of sort of calling attention to, uh, to a part of the world that I, you know, is obviously hugely important, but doesn't get enough attention. Um, but also a way, you know, in my last book, which was about, um, uh, Bangladesh, the Bangladesh war in 1971 and the ways in which the United States was involved in, uh, you know, aiding and abetting terrible atrocities there in the creation of what is the eighth largest country in the world. Um, I'm interested in human rights in Asia and part of what was exciting about the Tokyo trial as a topic is that you get to hear a lot of, you know, that there is Asian judges, Asian prosecutors in a way that you absolutely don't get at Nuremberg. So there, that there are no voices from what today we would call the global South. There's no voices from developing countries at Nuremberg. At Nuremberg is the United States, the Soviet Union, France representing an empire and Britain representing an empire. Um, whereas at Tokyo, you have 11 judges, including all those, you know, those four great power judges. But you also have China, you also have the Philippines, you also have India. So you get, re, you know, Asians saying what they think about an Asian war. And there's no, there's no equivalent at Nuremberg. There's no Jewish judge at Nuremberg or no Polish judge at Nuremberg. Thank you for that. That touches on some of the themes that I, I wanted to cover later on. And obviously, for such an epic work of nearly 900 pages of text and references, we can't really hope to do justice in such a short interview. Uh, but before we embark on on the three main sections of the book, I wanted to pick up what you say in, in, in the introduction. You explain that the Tokyo trial is, as you put it, best understood as the product of a clash of armies, a clash of empires, and a clash of ideals. And I wonder if you could just explain those three concepts for us, clash of armies, first of all. Um, sure. Yeah. I mean, when you talk about the uh, Tokyo trial in Japan, the first line that you will get um, almost always is that this was victor's justice. It's just America, you know, America exercising power uh, in the post-war. And certainly, you know, in an, in an obvious sense, it's victor's justice that there's no Japanese judges. There's, um, and there's no opportunity for the Japanese to put on trial Americans for the firebombing of Tokyo or for, or for the atomic bombings. Right. So in, in one sense, you know, there's, there's something to that accusation of victor's justice. But at the same time, what's striking, you know, wars almost always end with negotiations. And often in those negotiations, the ideal of international justice is, is given away. Nuremberg is unusual in that it's the product of total war and, you know, a total, what, you know, what, what people call the fight to the finish, that you're going to fight all the way to Berlin and would have the opportunity to do whatever you want to uh, German war criminals because they will make a complete unconditional surrender. And in Japan, it's actually, even though Japan nominally is facing unconditional surrender, it's actually a negotiation there too. Um, and that's one of the core themes is this very brutal negotiation, but nevertheless a negotiation 
between the Truman administration and Imperial Japan, where the Truman administration is facing the possibility of an invasion against still a Japanese army of 4 million people who presumably will be very highly motivated to defend their home islands from, uh, from foreign invaders. And Truman is desperate not to go through with it. And one thing that is offered um, that the Japan experts, such as they are in the administration, say, if you spare the emperor, then the emperor will be helpful in getting Japan to surrender and in helping allow an allied occupation of Japan in the post-war. And Truman weighs it and decides essentially to go along with that. So it's done implicitly. There is not a sort of public statement to that effect. But even after um, two atom bombings in the Soviet entry in the war, uh, when Japan responds to you know the call, the Allied call for surrender after Hiroshima, after Nagasaki, uh, Japan's government says still nothing will compromise uh, the prerogatives of the emperor as a sovereign ruler. So the emperor does sort of get gets to stay, does wind up helping to legitimize the occupation the occupation. And that's what I mean by a clash of armies. There's also in there is the Chinese civil war that as you, and the coming of the cold war. So it's another sort of clash of armies or sort of what's going on, not in the courtroom, but what's going on in international politics around them. And as the cold war gets going, there's real, there, you know, powerful pressure on all of the allied powers. Um, all of the Western Allied powers to um, to build up Japan as a Cold War bulwark against the Soviet Union, and especially after 1949, when uh, after the 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 revolution in China, so against the Soviet Union and the new People's Republic of China, and that means building up Japan as a bulwark. Um, MacArthur thinks, um, and you know, some of the a, a lot of the leaders of the occupation think George Kennan. Um, argue that you need to turn away from prosecuting Japanese war criminals and instead make sure that the Japanese state is sort of can stand up against communist subversion. So that's what I'm talking about with clash of armies. I guess moving on to sort of about clash of empires, talking how colonialism, empire, racism were themes that echoed throughout the trial. Could you say a bit about that and, and what struck you most about those themes? Yeah. Um, I mean, at every step, you see empire lurking in the background of these procedures. So most of the judges, there are 11 judges from 11 outside powers, but most of them are from colonial powers, including Britain, France, the Netherlands, uh, the United States, which then still has, you know, has an empire in the Philippines, uh, Soviet Union, an imperial power. Um, and Britain's influence over the court is magnified um, because there are uh, judges there from the Commonwealth, from Australia, Canada, and New Zealand, who work as a block. So even though Japanese will talk about the trial as being sort of an American show and Victor's justice, the Brits are actually astonishingly dominant. Um, so, um, and you do have there, there's an Indian judge and a, um, a Filipino judge, but those are added. At first, it's only going to be nine judges. The Indian and the Filipino judges are added at the last minute, and that's done more out of courtesy um, to the British and to the Americans, to the colonial powers, than it is to the Indians and Filipinos themselves. Um, 
And you have in the backroom arguments, part of what's fascinating about having Asian voices involved in this is that there are two, two judges, the Chinese and the Indian judge, who are really stern anti-colonialists. Um, and in their backroom maneuvering, they want questions of empire to be involved in that. And the Chinese judge is really, you know, who's a, he's a mainstay of the majority, but he's really mad at British white supremacists. He has, you know, in this, the Republic of China, which he's representing under the Kuomintang is, um, you know, is a very anti-colonial, uh, you know, anti-colonial power. Um, so that's a crucial part. The other thing is that the, you know, the core charge, both at Tokyo and Nuremberg is aggression. Um, but aggression in Nuremberg looks different from aggression in Tokyo because it's not a case of, um, you know, war against a sovereign self-ruling Poland. Um, the Japanese war effort is, you know, Japanese conquests of British colonies and French colonies and Dutch colonies, um, and American, American colonies. And to the Japanese defendants, they say, look, this isn't, you know, you know, one way of looking at that would be that it's not just sort of simple foreign conquest, but it's like a clash of a new empire against old empires. Uh, for some of the Japanese defendants, they say, we're here to liberate our Asian brethren from predatory Euro European colonialists. Um, and all of this is also bound up with, as you mentioned, racism, because when, you know, the history of emp empires are predicated on um, a, a bigoted sensibility, a sense that there are people who are inferior and need to be governed by some superior um, group. So this belief in the sort of inferiority of Asians means that for a lot of Japanese critics of the trial, then it's not just an unjust trial, it's not just victor's justice, but it's a racist court. It's a white man's court. Um, and there's nothing about this that is sort of a, you know, it do, the, the court doesn't speak with universal aspirations for justice. It's just another version of sort of white men making their world. So that's what I mean by the, the, the clash of empires. I will be able to get a chance to come on to uh, Judge Powell's dissent um, shortly, but I want to just finish off your introductory um, trilogy, the clash of ideals, where you talk about this ostensible repudiation of militarism in favor of democratization, liberalization, and the outlawing of aggressive war, as you've just mentioned. But you say the reality was far more messy. Could you just explain about that a little? Yeah, no, it, absolutely right. Like on the one hand, there are the this this sort of brief and kind of you know heady moment of post-war idealism with the creation of the UN in 1945. The Universal Declaration of Human Rights in 1948, um, but this window of of idealism doesn't last for very long. Uh, I do think it's remarkable that there's a trial at all because certainly Chinese, Filipino, American, British public opinion would have rather just shot these guys rather than um, than put them on trial. Um, but that sort of brief window of thinking about liberalization about building a sort of more peaceful world under law that really doesn't last. And one of the themes of the book is this sort of recursion into the Cold War that there are, you know, this is it. The book is not sort of it. It's, it's in no way a celebration um, of international law, 
that actually what you see is that policy debate in Washington is being won over and over again by conservatives, often Republicans, which is particularly unusual given that you're dealing with the Truman administration, but conservatives who care much more about American national security or about American hegemony than they do about democratization or human rights. So this idea of using the emperor to legitimize the occupation, you know, turning away from uh, quite radical, quite, you know, you know, MacArthur's land reform is astonishingly, you know, it looks astonishingly left wing, right? Um, to turning away from these sort of liberal, progressive, left-wing reforms to building up Japan as a Cold War bulwark. So that's the sort of, you know, the clash of ideals that there are ide there are ideals in there, but they don't last for very long. Right. So let's get on to the book uh, in its fullest part. So you divide it into three parts, Genesis, Catharsis, Nemesis. And I'd like to ask you about all three if I can, if we have time. So the first part, Genesis, you chart the origins of the Tokyo trial. Uh, you discuss some of the pivotal moments of the Second World War, um, that later formed the basis of the indictment, the Japanese attack on Pearl Harbor, obviously, invasion of Manchuria, destruction in Nanking, et cetera, et cetera. But firstly, I wanted to ask you to just say a bit about how influential or otherwise was the Nuremberg Tribunal on the Tokyo trial? It's certainly, they're, they're always sort of looking over their shoulder. The Chinese judge says, we ought not to, we should stand on our own two feet, and it's better if we come up with our own jurisprudence. Um, but they are in the shadow of it, and they actually have, when they're writing their judgment, they ought, they have the Tokyo judgment, they have the Nuremberg judgment to look at. So there's a clear sort of, you know, anxiety of influence. And you focus on some key figures that play an important part, directly or indirectly, in the creation of the Tokyo trial and how it played out. And you've already mentioned the, the one of the most controversial figures, in, certainly in terms of the non-prosecution, that's the Japanese Emperor Hirohito. Uh, could you tell a little, tell us a little bit more about why and how the decision came to be taken that he would not be put on trial with uh, the other senior military and civilian leaders of Japan at the time? Yeah, I mean, if you are so, you know, if you are coming up with people who were crucial in the Japanese hierarchy, and the emperor is the he's the head of the government, he's in charge of the military, um, and all the important decisions are made in his presence. And he's not just a figurehead, as he sometimes liked to claim after the war. He does have the ability to steer people into power, to choose the prime minister. Um, and on those occasions where he chooses to speak his mind, then even the most right-wing militarists in the army have to pay attention to what he says. So his, in fact, they indict and convict, the allies indict and convict, his top aide, the Lord Keeper of the Privy Seal, Marquis Kito Koichi, gets a lifetime sentence, is convicted of aggression and given a lifetime sentence, all of which suggests that if you would put the emperor on trial, then people would have said, like, this is the guy who made Tojo Hideki the, you know, the you know, the very, very hawkish army general, made him prime minister before Pearl Harbor, right? Um, but the emperor is seen um as useful for getting a surrender, um, useful for allowing the occupation. And therefore the, you know, the the Truman administration, pushed very hard by Douglas MacArthur, has to make this 
terribly complicated, I think really fascinating choice where I kind of want readers to grapple with that. Like, what would you have done if you were Harry Truman? Then on the one hand, there are a lot of people who are being put on trial who are at least as guilty as this guy. And on the other hand, what is this going to do to the peaceful occupation that I want the book? The book is written in a very um, non-didactic way to to try and let readers make up their own minds, that I'm trying to steer them through all of these debates, but with the idea that you don't just come to a sort of simple conclusion that these are really hard policy issues. Um, so yeah, that's the emperor. Yeah, I think the messiness of the decision-making comes through really clearly when you talk about the decisions that faced US General Douglas MacArthur, who you've just mentioned. What what was his attitude, as you write about it, to the trials, and how influential was his own personal views on, on what should be done to the uh, defeated Japanese civilian military leaders? So Macar MacArthur um, thinks the trials are a, ter are a terrible idea. Um, he does, he wants a really hasty sort of six-month trial that would be only for Pearl Harbor. Um, he, but the idea of this sort of massive, you know, multi-year legal extravaganza where um, Tojo gets stabbed his day in court, where um, the Chinese and the, you know, and Filipino prosecutors get to present all this evidence. Um, he wants no part of that. He just wants to quickly, let's condemn them for Pearl Harbor, hang it, you know, hang the people who are in his cabinet and then get on with things. And because he's so disgusted with the trial and horrified by its proceedings and can't believe that it's taken so long, it drags from 1946 all the way into 1948. Um, MacArthur kind of, you know, he, he gives up on it and that allows other powers a lot more room to skew it to their own purposes. So you see, you know, rather than American dominance, you see a lot of American abdication um, that the Americans are kind of taking them, you know, taking themselves off the board and having other priorities. And when you do that, then other powers come in and try and uh, try and move it for themselves. Well, let's move on to the, the core of the book, the second and longest section that you've called Catharsis. Uh, there's so many questions I could ask. I won't have time to ask all of the questions I'd like to ask, but I wondered if you could maybe summarize some of the questions I, would, I was going to ask by answering this one. How would you give our listeners a flavor of the trial? Are there particular aspects, characters, episodes that stood out for you as you, was, as you were researching and writing the book? So I'm trying, yeah, I mean, I'm trying to write this thing. The trial transcript itself is 50,000 pages almost. Um, and I'm also trying to include um, all of the Cold War politics and colonial politics swirling around it. Um, but there are, there are a couple of sort of, I thought, just amazing set pieces. So there's a testimony about the conquest of Manchuria by the last Qing emperor of China, uh, Henry Pui, if anybody's ever seen the movie The Last Emperor, it's that guy. Um, so he who winds up as a collaborator with the Japanese in the Japanese-run Manchuria, um, and he gets raked over the coals by defense counsel. So that was, I thought, you know, astonishing. Um, there's testimony about, remarkable testimony about the Nanjing massacre with a lot of extremely good high quality. I mean, you as a prosecutor, you know, they, uh, 
very high quality evidence, eyewitnesses, credible eyewitnesses giving detailed pattern, you know, detailed testimony about recurrent patterns. So it's, you know, that's very horrible to, to read, but um, remarkable and had an impact in Japan. Um, and there's also the testimony of, of all, you know, many of the defendants in their own defense. Tojo Hideki, the leading militarist, is defiant. Um, another remarkable figure is Togo Shigenori, who was the foreign minister who he's indicted because he was in the Pearl Harbor cabinet, but he was actually what the Americans, you know, refuse, what, what the judges refused to take on board is that he was in the cabinet because he was trying to stop the war. Um, he's arguing vehemently against attacking the United States and the British Empire. It says that's a catastrophic mistake. And he gives extraordinary testimony in his own defense, um, including where he points to, you know, he's asked who, you know, who are the people who are responsible? And he points out other defendants and says, those were the guys who wanted the war. I didn't. Now, in the third and final section that you've styled Nemesis, you talk about the closing speeches, the majority judgment and the dissenting judgment. And to me, what's particularly interesting as a former prosecutor uh, turned academic, it's not the the majority judgment that sticks out in history. It's, um, in your words, the titanic dissenting judgment of the Indian judge, uh, Justice Powell. Why do you think this should be? Why should it stick out so much, even overwhelm the the, the majority judgment? Um, Powell's dissent, I think, has been it's been embraced by Japanese conservatives as the true moral judgment of the trial, right? That this is the true, the authentic voice of Asians. Um, and I actually, you know, I think that the the voices of the Chinese judge and the Filipino judge are also, you know, those, I, you know, are. Were worth paying attention to, and those are also Asian voices. Um, but Paul's di and Paul's dissent is embraced because it acquits all of the Japanese leadership. It says that they were acting, whatever they did, those were acts of state, not war crimes that they can be held individually responsible for. Paul says they were just working the machinery of government. Um, he says that Japan was not an aggressor. But was actually acting in self-defense. That Japan went into invaded Manchuria out of self-defense against Chinese bandits. Um, that Japan had to attack at Pearl Harbor, but the United States had, you know, was already um, a combatant against Japan because it was supporting China um, and China's resistance of the Japanese invasion. So the United States was already party to the war. Paul says. Um, he's also. Japanese, a lot of what's said about him in Japan is not true. He's held up, you know, people will often tell you that he was the only expert about international law of all the judges, which isn't true. First of all, there are a couple of other who really were experts on international law. And secondly, Paul wasn't. He was an expert on Hindu and Vedic law. Um, people will also say that he never denied any atrocities. He just makes this sort of legal judgment. And that's just not true. I mean, first of all, the judgment itself is a hugely political document. It's a very opinionated reworking of, of the history of this period, um, treating it as self-defense. But also he's definitely, you know, he minimizes, downplays, or denies atrocities. He's very skeptical about rape and executions at Nanjing. Um, and later on, and this is something um that 
is you know uh, you know remarkable but he uses the exact same language about that he uses to deny atrocities at Nanjing to call into question the facts of the Holocaust and this is in the 1950s right when you know the facts of the Holocaust are well established and sort of in the forefront of people's um you know if anybody wanted to you know if you people have seen the news reels people have read about it um he's an exceptionally well educated and um, remarkably smart person. So he's clearly being exposed to the evidence and yet he's denying the facts of the Holocaust. So he's an extraordinarily rich, complicated figure. Um, one of my favorite characters in the book. Um, but there's a complexity to him that Japanese conservatives, I think don't, don't deal with. I know we've run out of time for now. Um, I'd love to ask you more questions if we had time in a future occasion. Um, you've written an amazing book, can I say. It's written with such panache and such detail, and I'm sure our listeners would uh, would would just receive it in the same way that I have. Um, one last question, if I may. What are you working on right now? Um, I'm, I'm genuinely not. Um, this is, I, um, this, this book took 10 years. It was, um, it was all consuming and you're so kind, like you're so kind to say nice things about it. And it's great to, um, to talk about it. But right now I'm, um, I, I, I am not working on another project. I don't know what the next one would be. Well-earned break by the sound of that. <laughs> Gary, thank you so much um, for all your uh, your time today. And um, I really enjoyed our conversation. I hope we can continue it in the future at some point, maybe. Uh, thanks very much. Alex, thank you so much. This was great. I appreciate it.